All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. We're going to begin exploring a text that deals with the important topic of hope. What really is the nature of Christian hope, at least in view of the specific questions that Paul is answering here. But before we jump into that text, and that, I just want to take a second to note that the listener's commentary is a crowdfunded Bible teaching project that's made possible by the generosity of people just like you. And if you're one of those who has donated to my ministry and donated to this project, I want to say a massive thank you to you. There are people learning the word through the listener's commentary all around the world because of your generosity. So thanks a ton for that. And if you have benefited from the listener's commentary in any way and you want to become part of the team that helps make this possible by donating, you can do so at the listenerscommentary.com slash give, listenerscommentary.com slash give. I'll put a link to that in the notes down below, and you can swing over there. And you can give a one-time gift. You can uh, give a recurring monthly gift. Just know that your gifts, your donations, are what make this project possible and are helping benefit pastors and Christians and people who are trying to learn the Bible all around the world. So thank you for your support. All right, in this session, we want to jump into 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And as we noted at the outset, the topic here in really broad terms is the topic of Christian hope. And it's not the first time Paul has mentioned that hope here in 1 Thessalonians. In fact, if you're a careful and astute reader of the letter, you'll notice that at the end of every chapter in 1 Thessalonians, there's some mention of Christian hope. If you look at chapter 1, for example, it has to do with waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. If you look again at chapter 2, it has to do with uh, the Thessalonians being Paul's pride and crown at Jesus' coming. Or at the end of chapter 3, it's the Thessalonians' being established blameless in holiness before God at the coming of the Lord Jesus. And so this topic actually shows up quite a bit in the letter, but here in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, he takes it up full force, and it's actually going to continue into chapter 5. But it's important to note that it's not just Christian hope in general, it's specifically Christian hope in regards to those who have died before Jesus returns. That's the specific focus of this section. Now, obviously, we only have one side of the conversation, Paul's side, here recorded in 1 Thessalonians. And so we don't know all that was going on amongst the Thessalonian Christians that motivated this topic and raised this question. We can speculate and we can maybe have a, a pretty good idea or a general idea based on what we know about the culture of the day and some of that and what Paul actually says, but we're, we're going to be speculating a little bit. For example, we know that in general, in Greco-Roman society, there was little hope for life beyond death. There may have been among some people sort of this vague idea of some sort of shadowy type existence in a netherworld of some sort. Uh, among some groups, there was some idea of a dark place of punishment and suffering, Tartarus, and so we know that. But generally speaking, there was very little sense of hope for life beyond death. In fact, a very common Latin epitaph was, I was not, I was, I am not, I care not. Like, 
There was a time when I didn't exist. Then I was born. I existed for a little while. Now I'm dead. I don't exist anymore. Doesn't matter, right? That was a very common Latin epitaph. Uh, Theocritus, a writer of the time, said, hopes are for the living. The dead are without hope. Um, There was just this general sense of very little hope in the face of death. Uh, And certainly there was no belief in the resurrection of the body. That was ludicrous. That was crazy, right? That the body itself was a prison house for the soul in particularly platonic thought, but that kind of thought had permeated the popular level. And so the body was viewed as a tomb, soma sema, the body is a tomb, and this idea of it being a a prison house. And so if there was any hope beyond death whatsoever, it certainly wasn't going to be bodily hope. And so there's no sense of that uh, among the greater Greco-Roman world. And yet for Christians, there is a deep sense of hope And that deep sense of hope includes the resurrection of the body. Both those themes show up here in this short passage in 1 Thessalonians. And so in view of the general pagan climate of the day, in view of how young this church is, in view perhaps of some even recent converts that have come into the church since Paul may have left, we don't know, Um, It seems that when Timothy returned back to Paul and gave them a generally good report about how the church is doing in view of their hardship, he mentioned some things they're wrestling with. We've already talked about some of those. He talked about sexual purity at the beginning of chapter 4. He talked about brotherly love and how that plays out in generosity and work ethic in chapter 4, 9 through 12. Now here in 4, 13 through 18, there's another subject that Paul wants to address that seems like is bugging the Thessalonians. And that subject is, what about our fellow believers who have died before Jesus comes? That assumes that uh, it sounds like, from what we can gather, there's at least been a death or two among the Thessalonian Christians since Paul has left. And they're wondering... Even though Paul taught them in general about Christian hope as part of his initial teaching and preaching to them, they're wondering, well, wait a second, we're not sure we understand how this fits in. And so they have a question about um, Christians who die before the coming of Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul takes up here in this section of 1 Thessalonians. So this is what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. He says, now, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as indeed the rest of mankind does who have no hope. Notice what he says here. Uh, We don't want you to be uninformed. We don't want you to literally be ignorant. There's a piece of knowledge that apparently Paul hadn't got a chance to teach them. They don't know. Now they can't reconcile what they do know with Uh, this outstanding issue of Christians who have died. And so Paul's like, I don't want you to be uninformed about that. Let me address that. And so he says, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. That's a metaphor for people who have died. And that's a very common metaphor in the New Testament, perhaps motivated by uh, the some of the things you know, pagan writers had said in the general pagan Milu, the idea of that once somebody has died, there's just one long night to sleep through, as one writer of the day said. But even beyond that, sleep is really an important metaphor, and it shows up in the Gospels with Jesus, and it shows up frequently in the New Testament because 
Sleep is something you get up from. And so for Jesus, the apostles, and for us as Christians, death is something you arise from, and hence sleep became an important metaphor for death. And so he doesn't want them to be ignorant about those who are asleep, those who have died for this reason. Notice the pastoral concern, so that, for this purpose, for this reason, so that you will not grieve as the rest of mankind does who have no hope. Now, the point isn't that you won't grieve. Paul's not saying, uh, I'm going to tell you this so that you will never have grief. What he is saying is, I'm telling this so that you won't grieve like the rest of human kind does, right? Like there's a, a kind of grief that is hopeless, and there's a kind of grief that is hope-filled. And so Paul wants to help them understand uh, the nature of Christian hope in view of death to help them grieve differently, to help them grieve um, in a more hope-filled sort of way. And so he's writing this to help them understand uh, how Christian hope affects those who have died so that it also shape the way the Christians now live. And so in verse 14, he states the basic point of this section. He says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, notice what he's about to say concerning Christian hope is grounded in what has already happened in the past. It's grounded in the facts of history. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do, we're convinced of that, then that's going to shape how we think about the future. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again from the dead, so also God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus or in Jesus. So note this, that those who die in Christ... When they die, they don't go to sleep. They don't cease to exist, right? They're, they go and they are with him. They're with Jesus so that God will bring with Jesus when he returns those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. So that when Jesus returns, those who have died are going to come with him upon his return. That means they are with him presently and they are cared for by him presently. And so their death doesn't end their relationship with Jesus. Paul goes on then in verse 15 and gives a few more details about this. For we say this to you by the word of the Lord. So here is something that uh, Paul is stating that he says we've learned by the word of the Lord. And it's probably some of the things that Jesus taught uh, that Paul now is applying to their situation. That's what he means by the word of the Lord. So we say this to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, so those who are alive at Jesus' return and remain until the coming of the Lord. So certain people right, are going to be alive. Certain Christians are going to be alive when Jesus returns. So we believers who are alive and are here when Jesus returns will not, catch this, precede those who have fallen asleep. So we may be alive, we are here, we're waiting for the return of Jesus, but when Jesus comes, we will not precede those in importance or in priority who have died before the coming of the Lord. That they are already with him, they're going to come with him when he returns, and thus are not unimportant or forgotten or uncared for by him, and so we will not precede them in priority. 
Now, another thing to note there out of verse 15 is that specific word coming. When he talks about until the coming of the Lord, that is the Greek word parousia for coming. Um, it is commonly used in the New Testament with regard to the second coming, the return of Jesus. But it's really an important word for us to understand the flavor and the feel of it so we can picture how the original readers would have pictured it. That word, one of the primary ways it was used in the ancient world was for the coming of some sort of nobleman, powerful political figure, the emperor himself, for the coming of whoever to your city. And so what it's talking about here in their cultural context would be a visit of a royal dignitary. Uh, a visit of an influential or powerful person, and they would come to your city. Now, he's going to continue with the imagery of how that would play out in their world with the word meet and uh, meet the Lord down below. So we'll need to put those two together here in a second. But just know Paul is using language that was familiar to them to picture and describe some things concerning the coming of the Lord. So this is the piracy of Jesus when he, as the great king, the world's true Lord, comes to his world like a visiting king, a visiting dignitary. He's going to come now and be present with his people and present to this place, present to this world. And so in verses 16 and 17, Paul takes that imagery and plays off of it with picturesque language to help describe the way things are going to occur. So he says in verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend. So when we're talking about this coming of the Lord, this, this appearing of Jesus, the, the true king of the world, this is how it's going to play out. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. Notice those three things, a shout, the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet of God. So there's going to be all sorts of noise, all sorts of fanfare uh, with regard to this coming to let people know that, hey, here, the big day is here. The king is coming. He's coming for uh, to come to his, his world that he owns and that he has redeemed. And so you have a shout. This is the only place that particular word shout is used in the New Testament. But outside of the New Testament, it's used of, um, for example, the shout from a general to his troops or it's used of a command that a charioteer gives to his horses, or an admiral gives to the rowers as he's barking orders to row faster and row harder, or even a, a command to uh, from a hunter to his hunting dogs, right? And so this shout is a shout of command. Don't know exactly how to picture that idea of command. The way I tend to think of it is, say, for example, I'm pairing it with something like John 11, when Jesus commands Lazarus to come out of the tomb. Maybe it's that kind of command, this shout of command for the dead to rise, because that's about to be mentioned here. Don't really know, but we have a shout of command there in verse 16. We have the voice of the archangel. Um, which archangel? Angel, we don't know. The only archangel mentioned by name in the New Testament is Michael. Uh, as the archangel, and so he's the only one specifically named. Gabriel's another angel that's named. We don't know for sure if he's an archangel or not. It would make sense that he was, but Michael is called an archangel and is named. And then the trumpet of God, and this uh, picture like a ram's horn trumpet or something like that, where you would blow the trumpet to announce your arrival, to announce uh, some big event. Sometimes the trumpet was even a trumpet of warning. And so um, there is going to be all this 
you know, audio fanfare when Jesus returns, the shout of command, the voice of an archangel and a trumpet of God. And notice, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's what he means when he says that um, we who are alive aren't going to precede those who have died. In fact, they're actually going to rise first. They're going to get their resurrection body, their glorified body right here first, before even to us. And so those who have died now are coming with Jesus, and immediately uh, they're, they're the first to receive their resurrection body, and so they rise and get their glorified body then. Then, verse 17 says, then we who are alive, who remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord always couple notes there out of verse 17. Um, and so we who are alive and remain, so we're the ones that are here. Uh, Jesus bringing the resurrected ones with him. Their resurrection happens in that moment. We who are alive are caught up together, snatched up together um, to be with the Lord. So we're snatched up with them. And so they are resurrected and, and meet the Lord, right? Get the resurrected body. We're snatched up uh, and presumably glorified in that moment uh, to with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's a really important phrase. That word to meet goes uh, pairs with parousia as what happens when a royal dignitary comes. Again, it's not 100% certain all that Paul is getting at because these are events that haven't happened. We don't know for sure exactly how it's going to play out, but here's what the original audience would have pictured. Um, at a parousia, when the city went to meet the dignitary or the powerful, influential figure that's coming to the city, right? It would be announced with fanfare like this that he has uh, arrived, that it's time he is here, and the welcoming party would go out of the city and would meet with this this king, this nobleman outside of the city, and then they would escort him in parade back into the city. That's the way it worked. This word, uh, to meet, was regularly used for that sort of event, and when combined with parousia, that's the picture Paul is painting. So he's not painting this idea of being caught up into the clouds to go off into heaven forever and ever, or to go off into heaven, say, like at a rapture or something like that, as some have taken this text. That's just not what this text is fundamentally about. This is uh, the, the believers fulfilling that idea of a welcoming party, welcoming the true king to his world, and so being caught up in the, the air and the assumption in the original audience would be, so you'd meet him in the air like that welcoming party, and then you would come with him the rest of the way, all the way to this world. Now, it's possible that Paul doesn't uh, have that picture in mind when he writes these words. It is possible that he assumes we're going up to heaven and we're going to be there. That's possible. But I would say it's highly unlikely in view of the way the language was used in the first century. And even though Paul doesn't specify it, the language is incredibly clear for combined parousia and to meet, and everyone, the original audience, would have pictured what I just described. And thus, if Paul is communicating clearly, that's the assumption here in this text, is that uh, Christians are meeting the Lord in the air, and then they're going to descend the rest of the way with Jesus to this world. And then the real point that really matters is this, at the end of verse 17, and so we will always be with the Lord. 
That's the result. That's the main thing. And so for the Thessalonian believers who are concerned about loved ones who have uh, died before the return of Jesus, Paul's assuring them, guess what? Uh, They're with the Lord now. They're going to come with him when he returns. They're actually going to get their glorified body first. And all of us together are going to be with the Lord forever. And so they're not neglected. They're not overlooked. And they're not going to miss out. We will all be together with the Lord forever. And that's the assurance that he's providing them in the face of Christians who have died. And then he ends this whole section with the pastoral encouragement and says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Encourage one another with with these words, right? Remind one another of them that that if you've had a a loved one who's a believer in Jesus who has died, he's not abandoned or forgotten. He's not missing out. He's actually with the Lord. He's going to come with the Lord, and he's going to get his glorified body as well as you, and we'll all be together with the Lord forever. All right, now, just a couple of reflections by way of implication from this text. The first is this, that we see it here, and we see it consistently throughout the New Testament, that eschatology, that is teaching about the end times, material about what's going to happen at the end, is always brought up with a pastoral purpose in mind. That is just terribly, terribly important. So please don't miss that. Whenever you read uh, passages in the New Testament, including this one, it is intended to in some way help Christians live the Christian life in the present better. Eschatology, stuff about end times, even though there's different views about it amongst Christians and we don't see eye to eye on it. And that's understandable. Why? Because those events haven't happened. The details are somewhat vague in the New Testament. We don't understand exactly how it's going to play out. So we see it differently. But let's not debate and argue in, you know, heatedly about that. Let's certainly not make that the focus. Like there's an awful lot we agree on, even in the different schools of thought. And the overall point in the New Testament is what we see here, and that is it has a pastoral purpose. It's intended to strengthen Christian living. So you see, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul brings up the resurrection, he ends this whole long treatment of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 by saying, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because you know that your toil in the Lord's not in vain. Or in... uh, Second Peter, when he brings up that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Again, look at the pastoral purpose, and it's, therefore, what sort of people ought you be in holiness and godliness of conduct? He's driving us to live godly lives in the present. And we see the same thing here. Paul brings up the coming of Jesus, and he does so to strengthen the the Christians, and they're supposed to encourage one another with these words. Why? Because their loved ones are with the Lord now, and they are going to be glorified, and we're all going to be with the Lord forever. And so there's this pastoral purpose. That's really, really important. So when you read passages about end times and second coming, man, we can wrestle with all the details. We can try to figure it out. But just know there's a lot we don't know exactly how it's going to play out. Let's not miss the point. And the point is that hope drives life in the present. And we want to make sure we have a solid Christian hope so that we can live the Christian life in the here and now. That's the first implication out of this. Now, the specific topic here is death. So let's talk just a little bit about death and what this says about it. And that is this. It's very common in 
the popular conception of the world to think of death as just a natural part of life, right? Like death is just a natural part of life. It's just what happens. It's just the way life goes. And often we think that and we feel that. But in the the consistent teaching of the Bible, the consistent theology of, of the Bible, old and New Testament alike, uh, but especially in the New, death is an alien invader into the world. Death is the result of disloyalty to God, and it comes about as a consequence of sin. So death is normal, but it's not natural in the sense that it's not the way things are supposed to be. And thus, death is something that the New Testament describes as an enemy, the final enemy. Um, And it's the final enemy because it's the last one that Jesus is going to put under his feet. And he has conquered it already in part, right, by his own resurrection. He's demonstrated his power over it. He shows that death cannot keep him down. And thus death is already on its way out in the present world. But it's going to remain until Jesus returns. And when he returns, there will be resurrection and life will triumph over death. And so in view of that, we can own death as something we don't like, something that hurts us, right? We don't like the separation that death brings in relationships. And that's what the Thessalonians are grieving and wrestling with here. And yet in Christ, we can also celebrate that death is defeated and death isn't the end and that Jesus will triumph over death, and that there will be a resurrection of our bodies, and we will live together with uh, our fellow Christians um, who have died in Christ, right? Our fellow Christians who remain when he comes again, right? We'll all be together with each other, but also with the Lord, alive and well forever. And that even now upon death, we are well taken care of. We are with the Lord and we will come with him when he returns. And so death isn't the end. It's a transition. It's a transition to being with the Lord. uh, And it's a transition that will be overcome ultimately when the Lord returns and we are resurrected. And so we don't live in fear of death. We know that Jesus came to destroy him who has the power of death. That is the devil. That's what Hebrews says, right? And so we know that Jesus has triumphed over death, and death is not the final word. Jesus has the final word, not death itself. And so we live with great hope. And as Paul ends this section, I end this recording by saying, Therefore, encourage one another with these words.